Hello and welcome to another episode of Color of Changes Tell Black Stories podcast. I'm Gia Peppers. I'm back. I missed you all. Thank you to our sponsor, the Open Society Foundations, an organization that works to build vibrant and inclusive societies whose governments are accountable and open to the participation of all people. Tell Black Stories is an initiative created as an extension of Color of Changes Hollywood work, an initiative to change the rules in Hollywood by ensuring accurate, diverse, empathetic and human portrayals of black people in film and television. We collaborate with writers, producers, executives, and influencers to raise industry standards and change representations of black people and issues affecting us throughout the media landscape. Today, we're very excited because we're here with acclaimed writer Cord Jefferson. Cord started his career in journalism, writing for the New York Times Magazine, HuffPost, The Root, Gawker, and is now a scripted television writer. Cord's written for popular shows like Succession, The Good Place, and one of my personal favorites, just groundbreaking TV, Watchmen. Today, we'll be discussing Watchmen, his journey to te television writing, the importance and impact stories have on culture, and calls for change in Hollywood in light of national uprisings for Black lives. Cord, hello, my friend. Hello, Gia. Hello, Gia. That was a mouthful. I'm impressed already. It was. It was. <laughs> You're good at your job. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. I'm doing very well. This is such a crazy time. Uh, I know. You know, we're fighting yeah. many pandemics, including systemic racism, including police brutality, including an economic uh, downturn, and then. COVID-19 just is on top deciding of it all. To, and on top of it all is yeah. deciding to kick back up. So how are you doing and managing in this moment? Uh, you know, I take it day by day. I think that's all you can do. The news changes day by day. Our information about everything changes day by day. Um, I think that, uh, and, and, you know, there's ups and downs. I think that there's a lot to feel cynical about right now, but I think that there's also a lot to feel hopeful about. I think that, you know, on the one hand, feeling cynical about leaders being stupid and opening states before they need to be open and people getting sick and dying because of that and um, police brutality and, and sort of those are, those are the darker things. But then seeing the uprisings and seeing people help one another through these things and seeing young people take to the streets and, and, and fight for what they believe in and seeing some, some change start to happen because of that, I think that you know, those, that, those are also uh, reasons to be optimistic. So I think it changes day by day, sometimes hour by hour. Uh, yeah. But I don't think that's unique. I think everybody's feeling that right now. Absolutely. Every single person I've talked to this week, just as I check in on my friends, have all been like, why does everything feel like it's coming to a head? Like it yeah. is just one of those moments where anxiety is at an all time high. You yeah. know, people are dealing with their different mental health struggles um, and things like that. So for you, yeah. like just as a creative, how are you balancing your, your mental health? What does that self-care practice look like for you? I do. Uh, I, I try to shout out my therapist as much as possible. Ian, I see Ian every Tuesday morning at 9am. He's my dude. Yeah. He helps me, uh, try to stay straight for the week. And then I see him again on uh, the next Tuesday. So I think that, you know, taking those moments, I think are incredibly important for, for everybody. But I think in particular for people of color, I think for a long time, people of color um, were sort of not given that opportunity to, to feel like they should take care of themselves in things yeah. like, like therapy. And so I sort of am the biggest proponent of that for everybody. I just think that it's, it's changed my life for the better. 
I think, I mean, I think that, I think personally, I think therapy should be free. I think that things would change almost overnight if everybody got therapy for free and it was, and it was um, maybe mandated. I don't know. I don't know if it should be mandated, but I do think that everybody should go. And I think that it should be much, much less expensive than it is. Mm, yeah. Wow. That is beautiful. I've seen like different articles or op-eds that have said that black people should get therapy for free, especially oh, absolutely. the trauma, yeah. the le- legit trauma we faced ever since we were brought here. When I was, a, yeah. When I was a journalist years ago, um, I interviewed this dude, David Mailbranch, who's a, um, at the time he was a uh, professor of medicine, uh, doctor at Emory. Um, and he, his special, his specialty was, um, research into STIs and, and HIV in the black community, particularly like black communities in the rural South around, around, uh, Georgia. And I was interviewing about this, about this project that Obama had put together where he donated, I, you know, I, I want to say something like 30 or $300 million to fighting, um, HIV in the black community. And I interviewed David Mailbranch about this and, and asked him his thoughts about, about the program and at the end I asked him what he would do if he got the if he got had all that money and, and what he would do to combat HIV in the black community and he said I forget this he said he said I would just give it all to free therapy he said like I would just he said so much of the problems that I'm encountering in communities are not medical problems they're not they're not any more pathology more than like people just want somebody to talk to and want somebody to, to love them and feel like they are they are loved and wanted and appreciated and that stuck with me forever. I think about that. I think about that all the time. Like that, that he just, a medical doctor saying that he would just put it all toward therapy. And I think that that is, I think that if we could move more toward that sort of society, I think it would be better for all of us in the long run. Wow. That is so profound. Thank you yeah, for saying that. Yeah, it was powerful. Like you yeah. Even, you don't even think about, I mean, what, now that is such a part of our daily conversation, therapy and mental health, but you know, even my parents' generation and the generations before never really thought about oh, therapy yeah. as something that was uh, a practice that we should yeah. all put into our lives. We are yeah. now, you know, having discussions and my parents would be like, you don't need no therapy. And I'm like, eh, <laughs> I'm not yeah. crazy. It's yeah. just, you know, I think because it's helpful. For, yeah, because for so long, I think people, particularly in the Black community, were, you know, expected to just sort of, be strong. And this is your taught. You're taught be strong. Life is hard. And so you need to keep your chin up and sort of walk forward and keep dealing with it and, and don't complain too much. And I think that yeah. that has, was, was difficult for a lot of people in the generations before us. I, my, my dad is a Vietnam veteran who never, never went to therapy after Vietnam. And, and sort of, I've talked to him now in recent days about it and he's, and he, you know, he suffered through PTSD. And so he's, he went, you know, he's almost 80 now. So he spent, you know, 50 years just trying to gut it out this like real, real serious trauma he went through. And I think that had we sort of had we taken that that kind of thing more seriously back then, I think that people's entire lives would be changed. His, his absolutely would have been different. Wow. 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 Thank, wow. We are getting I just love this conversation. We did, I had no small talk. Only big no talk. Small t- only no, big talk. We don't do small talk. Okay. <laughs> Tell right black story. <laughs> um, but uh, what one of the dope things about this moment is that it just feels different. Like you were saying, while it's absolutely there's so much darkness, there is a lot of light in seeing um, one how people are showing up, but two, 
part of this is this is this is a tough conversation because I know some of my friends are like white people have part of their privilege has been that they get to be ignorant to all of the things that black people go through. But on the other hand, it is nice to see people kind of take the veil away from what the American dream looks like and see and they finally see that black people were not in fact lying. Racism still does yeah. exist. Um so absolutely you know one of my favorite James Baldwin quotes ever is that um, being white means never having to think about it. And so it's, it's, it, and it's, uh, you know, I think about the fact that I'm black every day. I think maybe, maybe you do that too. And, and I think yep. that for, for a long time, um, white people in this country have been able to uh, never have to think about it. They never have to think about the fact that they're white. Uh, and so I think that um, we're seeing sort of chickens coming home to roost now with, with a lot of people, as you said, uh, uh, I think you said lifted the veil. I think that people are starting to understand like, oh, I, I need to start thinking about this more. And I think, I think this needs to be a thing that I think about daily. Um, and I know it's exhausting and it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm sorry if it's exhausting for you, you're feeling burnt out already, but people have been going through this for hundreds of years. years. And so it's years. time to wake up. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love that. Devon, that's it. That's the clip. I'm just yeah. waiting. So, <laughs> um, so again, you know, we've seen all these calls now to defund police, abolish prisons. We're starting to see Black creatives also call for systemic change in Hollywood because uh, it, systemic racism goes from our doctor's offices to our lawyer's offices to banks to every part of our lives has we have to deal with systemic racism. Um, but you recently signed the Black Artist for Freedom Artist Statement, and we've seen yeah. folks like Kendrick Sampson, Tessa Thompson, and all so many great people actually demand different things for Hollywood to invest in Black lives. Why did you feel it was so important for you to sign the statement? Um, and what role do you think Hollywood can play in this movement specifically? Uh, I wanted to sign the statement, you know, uh, multiple reasons. I believe everything that was in that letter, I, I agree with it. I wanted to show solidarity with the people who, I, who wrote it and, and who yeah. in, in initially conceived of the idea. Um, I support it. Uh, and I also feel like Hollywood is often sort of derided as this liberal, liberal wasteland where, yes. where it's like everybody's so, so far super left and there's, and it's like, um, a liberal fantasy land and and um, everything's fine here and good and dandy and totally different than, than what you might find in sort of more racist parts of America, like the South or Texas. And ask a lot of people who work in entertainment, uh, particularly people of color, and they'll tell you that that's just not true. I think that I, I was reading, you know, I think I was reading actually a color of change document um, about about sort of the, the diversity in, in, in yep. TV specifically. And it was like, you know, 91% of showrunners are still white people. There are like, I think there was like 65% of white showrunners or maybe 70% of white showrunners didn't have a single black writer in their writer's room. So, I mean, this idea that, that Hollywood is super leftist and that all the problems that, that uh, plague the rest of the country don't exist here because everybody's a Democrat is just not true. And so I sort of wanted to get on board and, and support something that, that was in favor of, of, of real tangible change in this industry because I think it needs to happen. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that uh, because we have uh, front runners like Lena Waithe, Issa Rae, Ava DuVernay, uh, Oprah with her own network, uh, you know, all of these women and men, uh, Matthew A. Cherry is getting a lot of great work as yeah. well. Um, you know, we, we see these, these people that we love. Black Panther was the number one movie in America. What a time. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> when outside 
Adams opening in Black there Panther. There are, yeah. <laughs> there are. I just forgot. You know, you're just, you're just like, I legit was allowed to go outside last year. Yeah. Um, no, yeah. but I say all that to say, like, it seems like, you know, people are like, see, this is it. This is what's happening. We're all good. And in the same way that, you know, Barack Obama was was elected president, we're, we're still exactly. not there. Exactly. Um, That's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say that the same thing happened with Obama, that once Obama was elected, we were taught that people said that there was it was post-racial America. The racism's over because you had a black president. And I mean, that's just obviously we see we can see what happens, what a difference three and a half years make when Obama's out of office. And I, I don't think anybody would be willing to say that we're in a post-racial America uh, yes. these days. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and why, what do you think specifically as a person who now works in Hollywood, who's in these rooms, who's in these writers' rooms, what would you like to see done in Hollywood to actually make sure that they're investing in the Black creatives and the Black lives that so many of these companies are now saying that they're uh, for? I just think that you need to actually put black people in these rooms and in executive positions and in showrunner positions um, because they're the ones who are deciding what's going to be on the air. Showrunners are deciding what, what shows are going to look like and how they're going to portray the, the characters on the show. Um, so you can do things like just have like a single black staff writer, but if that single black staff writer isn't then empowered to grow and rise up the ranks and become showrunners themselves, and you haven't really done much. And so I think that a, what, what we've done a lot, and, and, and you know, a lot of the time that there's not, you know, my first TV job ever was, I had never written a script before. I had never, I had never um, worked on any television program before, or any production um, role at all. I was only a journalist and a guy came to me one day and said, I think you're smart and talented and I wanna bring you into the writer's room. And maybe it'll be a disaster. Maybe I'll have made a big mistake. Maybe you'll hate it, but let's try it out. And his name is Mike O'Malley. And uh, the show was this Survivor's Remorse. It was the show that was executive produced by LeBron James. It was based loosely on LeBron's life. And thank you. And I'll never, I'll never forget that. I'll never, because he just took a risk. He's, he was like, I'm going to, you haven't done this before, but I'm going to bring you on and teach you how to do this. And um, too few people are willing to do that. I mean, there's so many kids uh, and you know, grown adults now who work in this industry, who you know, went to Harvard and worked on the Harvard Lampoon, and then di went directly from the Harvard Lampoon and got a job in television, and then sort of came up through the ranks that way. And it's you know, it's easier for them because people say like, well, they've had they've had um, you know, they've done it before, or they have a skill set that 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 other people may not have. I didn't have a skill set in TV, but somebody believed in me. And somebody saw something in me that they thought would work on the show and they taught me how to do it. And I think people need to be willing to do more on the job training, be willing to promote um, black people once you've hired them and also be willing to put black people in sort of the highest echelons of this, of this industry. So running, running um, networks, running uh, production studios, you need to actually give them power um, and not just sort of, give them um, lip service about, you know, well, we hired a black staff writer that we ended up not listening much to. And then, and then that person goes away and doesn't get rehired for that show. And they have to start as a staff writer on another show. We actually need progress and, and forward momentum for these people. Awesome. That's, I think that that is definitely one of the keys because every time we look up, you know, we, we see more people winning, but it's still only one person. I just hope that, like you said, we have a plethora, like by this time next year, we talk, 
hopefully we're outside, but hopefully there's <laughs> 20 more names we can say to add to this list of people who have been brought in because all, all, all these companies have their cute little packaged, nicely, aesthetically pleasing graphic designs that they're putting out for social statements. And it's like, this is really great. It's a great retweet. <laughs> I can like it. But like, Absolutely. what are you actually going to do to make sure that it's not uh, a token person that's winning, that it's like a communal thing? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, and you, I support people who are performative on social media. I think that it does. I think it does have an impact. But what has more of an impact is if you have power and you have hiring power, hiring black people, giving them a job, giving them a paycheck, teaching them the skills that you know and that you can pass down to them, they can then pass down to other people and once and, and give them power to hire other people in their lives. I think that is yeah. that is gonna be if you if you hire a black person and don't put anything on social media, I would prefer you hiring a black person over over you know, over putting something Ooh. on Instagram any day of the week. That's that's what that's good. I love that. Okay, let's move on to the um let's talk a little bit about your journey because you were this like incredible journalist. You were reporting, you were interviewing people, covering so many things, and then you decided to go into television and now you're doing even more incredible things. But can you tell me a little bit about your foray one into journalism? And then we talked a little bit about how that how uh you said Mike, Mike, Michael Michael Malley. Michael Malley gave you yeah. a chance. Um, but I would love to like go delve into your journey a little bit. So tell me about the yeah. origin story of Cord Jefferson. The origin story of Cord Jefferson. Um, I was born in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, my family moved overseas uh, when I was a little kid into to Saudi Arabia and to Greece for a little bit because my dad was working over there. He's a lawyer. And then we moved back to Tucson when I was about um, six, five or six. And then I was there and then I went to college in Virginia and then... I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I graduated with a sociology degree. I had no real um, college for me was more about figuring out what I didn't want to do more than what I did want to do. If that makes sense. I sort of mm -hmm. took the gen ed requirements. I was like, okay, I don't like econ. I don't like biology. I don't like um, the finance classes or pre-law, but I didn't leave knowing what I exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I started a literary magazine there with some of my friends my, and I, I used to write on the high school newspaper. My mom told me when she was, um, when I was a little kid that she, that she thought I was going to be a writer one day. She, she sort of wow. called it in third grade, but I didn't, you know, I was raised in Tucson. I didn't really know anybody who, who was an artist for a living. And I think that if you don't see that when you're younger, that doesn't feel like a real thing. You know, everybody in my life went, went to grad school and they were professionals and they were doctors or lawyers or therapists or, um, they ran nonprofits. They had, you know, um, professional jobs. And it, the people that I know who did art did it on the side. You know, they played guitar in a bar band on the weekends. And so I thought that I, that's what I was going to have to do my whole life. And I graduated from college and I ended up working as a, a communications coordinator at this small nonprofit in Venice Beach. And on the in my free time, I, I made journalism a hobby. And so I was doing music journalism at first. Then I started writing a little bit for the alternative weeklies in L.A., and I started making enough money. Do I started making this a comparable amount of money doing journalism that I was making in my day job at the nonprofit. And I wasn't enjoying my day job at the nonprofit. So I said, if I'm going to be making the same amount of money doing this thing that I hate, then I should just quit and do this thing that I'm actually enjoying, which was writing. Yeah. And so I quit my job and just started freelance writing for a long time. And I bounced around from journalism job to journalism job. 
I did, like you said, I started out as a music journalist. I ended up at The Root. I was doing some White House reporting in D.C. in Obama's first year in office, which was fun. Um, and then I ended up at Good Magazine and then left there and ended up at Gawker. And Gaw I was at Gawker from 2012 to 2014 as a West Coast editor. And I was enjoying my job there. I, I liked working as a journalist. I liked writing, doing that kind of writing. Um, it was, I found it fulfilling in many ways. But when I started writing, you know, my literary heroes are, are people like uh, James Baldwin and Joan Didion. And, uh, you know, the reason that I, I find them um, so heroic and, and admirable is that they took the idea of being a writer and, and made it very big. So, you know, they wrote a novel and then they would go and write, um, write a book of essays and they would go write an article for a newspaper and then they would yeah. go write a screenplay. I just found out, I just rewatched Malcolm X the other day on Netflix and I went and looked up um, the cast and crew of that. And I found out that James Baldwin actually wrote the first draft of that screenplay of Spike Lee's Malcolm X, which I did not know. Um, I did not know that yeah, either. Yeah, right. It's a wow. fun fact. Yeah. And so just these people, what it meant to be a writer to them was very broad. And so I always knew that I wanted to try doing other things, but journalism was just the easiest, um, not the easiest, but just the first path that was, that was opened up to me that I was able to uh, go down. And so when Mike O'Malley wrote to me one day out of the blue, he just read some of my work and emailed me and just said, uh, I enjoy, I enjoy your writing. Do you think you'd be ever be interested in writing for TV? And so he and I met at a Starbucks in LA and we, we chatted for about an hour and hit it off. And he's, and he's, offered me my first TV job. And so I, I quit, I quit. Uh, he offered me the job on Friday. I had to quit Gawker over the weekend. I wasn't able to give him two weeks notice. I felt really guilty about that. But, oh, man. but I, yeah, but I told, <laughs> but I told my boss, you know, I just think that this is an opportunity that doesn't come along very often. And right. so I just need to do it. And he was very supportive of that. And I started working in TV, you know, two days later. Wow. Two days later. Okay. Wait, okay. So you Pretty go from a person who's writing about all of the things to a person who is in the rooms now creating words for television and actually like in those spaces. I, I know for like entertainment journalists, it's like you're writing about the things and then you get to write the things. Like it's yeah. crazy uh, that transition. So what was your yeah. first day in the writer's room like? Like, were you overwhelmed? How did you handle that transition mm -hmm. of I'm writing behind a desk and now I'm writing at a table filled with other writers? Yeah, I was incredibly nervous. I, I, there's a, on my both my first two TV writing jobs, I almost passed out on my first day because I was so nervous. I saw I started seeing spots and like my vision was going a little bit blurry. Oh my gosh. Uh, and I felt that way there because I, you know, I felt like, what if I fail? Uh, maybe I'm out of my depth. Maybe I won't be good at this. But to Mike's credit and to everybody that I worked with on that show's credit, they were all incredibly welcoming and supportive. And they never made me feel like I was less than because I, because I didn't have the experience that they had. Everybody was just super open and taught me a lot. And I, I to this day, I, I feel like I, have, I owe a debt of gratitude to all of them for, um, for supporting me. I, I worked with, I love, do you know Tracy Oliver? Tracy yes. Oliver, who's, yeah, so Tr Tracy, who's been killing it. She's, I feel like she, did, she has like 87 movies and 30 TV yeah. shows all at once. Um, but she was, she, was in, she was in that room with me. And she was incredibly supportive and taught me a lot. Um, there was just a lot of, uh, you know, it, w it wasn't a huge room, but I think there was about eight of us and, and uh, everybody was just incredibly kind and, and considerate and welcoming. So That's awesome. I, uh, and I really liked the collaboration of it. 
writing as a journalist is a, is a very, very solitary exercise. It's a lot mm -hmm. of time spent alone, I, particularly when I was working at Gawker, I was in LA and Gawker was in New York. So I didn't even go into the offices. So was, there was days when I legitimately didn't talk to anybody all day. I was, I was, because I lived alone. And so I would, you know, text them or G chat the people that I worked with, but I didn't actually like say anything to anybody. And then I would go to like the gym and I would come home from the gym with my headphones on and realize that I hadn't said a word to anybody all day. And it was, you know, I didn't mind that. I'm kind of an introvert and, and, and a quiet person myself, but I found that being in a room with a bunch of people and working on ideas together felt really good and it felt really gratifying. I, uh, I, you know, I think that teamwork always makes things better. Cooperation always makes your work better. Uh, yeah. And I think that that, that, that goes for, for nearly everything. And so working with other writers, but not only other writers, with directors and actors and producers and costume designers to make something huge, you know, there's hundreds, hundreds of people working on TV and movies. And so working on something with, with people just felt really enjoyable in a different way. I still really like journalism from, and, and I, w I would do more of it if I had the time um, because there is that sense of immediacy. There's that, you know, you get to write something with an editor and then you put it out there and it's, you know, it's done and yeah. you, you said what yeah. you needed to say and that's great. Um, and you know, there's, there's stuff you'll work on in TV that you'll work on for literally years and it'll never see the light of day. It'll die somewhere after you've worked on it for three, four five years, you know? Yeah. And so, that's scary. yeah, that can be heartbreaking. Right. Um, but at the same time, I really, I just enjoyed it. The process of collaboration for different reasons. Mm, that's awesome. I love that. Okay. So we are now let's talk about Watchmen because that show literally I have never seen anything like it in my life. I remember watching the first episode and legit having a headache because I went to a screening and I was like, you know, most screenings in New York are like, okay, you know, we got Regina King, Oscar winner. She going to kill it. So let's yeah. go support her. Um, yeah. And there's this organization called uh, the CCNYC, which is the Creative Collective. And it's basically like this super dope young, uh, young group of creatives in NYC that just come together every year. Uh, and they create this event called CultureCon. And that mm. this last year was incredible because they had, you know, Sanaa Lathan, Regina King, they had Will Smith dropped in at one point. Like they went from- Oh, Will Smith just dropped in. <laughs> yeah. Like they hey, went Will from- Smith's Hey, Will. Like they went from one year we were at uh, we were at a little uh, WeWork space in the lobby with Spike Lee and maybe like one or two other notable figures. And then like three years later, they had everybody from Sonali. Like it was just incredible. So wow. uh, shout out to CCMIC, but they were able to get one of the first premieres of the show. So we were sitting there just thinking, oh, Virginia, getting out, she's about to play a superhero. This is lit. <laughs> Come to find out, it is this deep dive into yeah. history, into yeah. the Tulsa race massacre, yeah. into all of these really tough, traumatic types of, 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 of our history, moments in our history that I just, we weren't prepared. I legit thought I was about to see something Marvel. Like, I, it was like a Marvel yeah, type that's of show. A, that's a, that is not a Marvel opening of that episode. No, no it's, it's not. <laughs> so I was like, you know, I had a headache, and like legit watching the first episode. And I was like, okay, I need a moment. I got to revisit this show. But everyone always says for the people who were overwhelmed that your episode, The Extraordinary Being, is the one that like always makes people, even if it's too much, people yeah. always are like, oh, okay, this is the point of the story. So we have to talk about this episode because okay. it's one of the greatest television pieces I've ever seen. Um, and in her That's review of the kind. episode, 
Of course. In her review of the episode, writer Joelle Monique writes that our trauma runs a never-ending loop of shame and dehumanization, which we all saw in that episode. And it really delves deep into the generational trauma and the impact that it can have. Um, Can you talk about the process of creating this connection between past and present with Angela and Will? Can you take us through that process? Yeah, I, you know, the, the show, when you open a show, when you open a pilot with that, what we open that pilot with, which is a depiction of the, the Tulsa massacre, you are saying that this is going to be a show that's rooted in history. Yep. And so um, we, when we came into the room, Damon knew that he wanted to incorporate the Tulsa massacre somewhere in the season. I don't think it, I think it took us uh, weeks, if not months to decide that it should be in the pilot. And then I think it took us a little bit longer to decide that it should be the opening of the pilot. Um, But once we made it the opening of the pilot, we realized that sort of the season had to revolve around that. And the show being one about how the wounds of the past carry through generations and uh, become the wounds of the present uh, it started to, that, that narrative and that theme started to open up and, and that I think guided our hand for the rest of the season. And I think that, you know, as you said, um, you know, you saying that episode six is what opened it up for a lot of people. Uh, we had that, when I, when I first sent the script to Damon, uh, when I first sent my draft to Damon, he, I remember he said, uh, if this doesn't work, I think we're kind of screwed, which is, which was like, <laughs> no pressure at all, boss. Thanks. And it was like, <laughs> But but I think that it, it's it was true, you know. I think that 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 was the key that unlocked a lot of the mysteries um, for the season and and clarified a lot of the things that had been happening in the previous five episodes. And so, um, and that one I think is like clearly the most on theme about this is about generational trauma. This is about how something that could happen a hundred years ago is still affecting people nowadays. And so, um, to me, that is you know, I think that that is such a, a crucial and vital lesson, particularly for, for people in America, for t- particularly for black people in America. I'm, well, I, I think it's a lesson more for white people in America. I think black people already understand it, but I think that it's a crucial part of the black story in America is, is generational trauma and is how the wounds of 400 years ago carry through to nowadays. And so yeah. I felt, um, I felt incredibly honored to be able to write that, write that script with Damon, just because I feel like those themes are so important to me. And I think so important to, to the history of this country in general. Yeah. Yeah. It was, there were so many layers in that episode as well. And I think um, as a, as a, as a viewer, you were taken on this deep ride that was, there was never like there was never that anything that happened in that show that I expected. There was always a, a new door to open, a new plot twist that I didn't see coming. And I think it was some of the most brilliant work I've ever seen, and some of the most thought provoking work I, I've ever seen on any channel ever. Um, as a Thank person you. that's now, of course, as a person that's now on the other side of episode six, what what's your what are you feeling about how people took it in? Like, do you feel fulfilled? Do you feel like you guys did your job? Like, what is, what is the, the feeling yeah, now that it's I was, out? I was um, incredibly nervous when we, when we were doing that episode because, you know, if you're unfamiliar with the, with the book, uh, uh, 
Okay. You was yeah. I, I I hadn't read Watchmen until I started working on the show, and then and then when Damon hired me, I went out and bought it immediately and, and devoured it and loved it. But um, original in the original text, Hooded Justice, his identity is never revealed in the book, and most people in in the Watchmen text assume Hooded Justice to be this um, German bodybuilder because he's so is was sort of. Everybody talks about his uh, superhuman like strength. And so um, that's never revealed, but it's assumed to be this German man. And so even to take that character and give him a backstory and, and it was a, was a big swing, but then to give him a backstory of being a black man and being ma making the original superhero, a black man was um, another big swing. And so, you know, just even taking on Watchmen was a huge swing out of itself because it was such a beloved property. But the more that we got into it, the more excited I became by the idea, because I think that, you know, <clears throat> when you think about the origin of superheroes, when you think about what kind of person might be seeking extrajudicial justice in a, in a system that, that, that doesn't, um, doesn't allow them to right wrongs and doesn't give them the same benefits that it, that it provides everybody else, you think like, oh, it makes sense that that's a person of color. Like, of course that's a black person, right? Like yeah. who, who in the 1930s United States of America um, would have more claim to being a vigilante and being a, a vigilante superhero than, than a black person, right? And so um, that to me, that idea was incredibly exciting and one that I hadn't seen in film or TV before. And the more that we discussed it, um, the more excited I got, I got by it. And I think that, you know, I'm, I am super, I'm not a huge Marvel fan myself. I, I, I like, I've watched those movies and I, and I'm happy for everybody that, that loves them. Yeah. Like, I, like, I, I think that, I think that for me, what I really like is, is stuff that's grounded in some sense of reality and grounded in, in, in some sense of history and grounded in some sense of, um, society in America. And so this was, this being a superhero sci-fi genre story, but that also felt really deeply rooted in something authentic and real and important was what really drew me to the material. And um, I was, you know, I was thrilled as the season went along with, 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 uh, with the themes that we were touching on. And I, I, uh, you know, no shots to Marvel. Again, if you love Marvel, more power <laughs> to you. More no, power to you. But 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 that's but I, but I just wanted to you know I was if I'm going to be drawn to a superhero thing, I think I'd be more drawn to something like like Watchmen than than right. something that just felt more just like fantastical. If that makes right. sense. Right. Right. No, I totally understand that. It, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, but I think one of the awesome things that you all uh, cover and touch on, and you, and you said things that are important is it's pride month and i want to talk about the beautiful story that you all wrote of a queer black man who is a superhero which i don't think i've ever seen ever anywhere yeah. on television um can you talk about the importance of that episode of, of television that literally takes us into the intersectionality of living life as a black man and a, a queer man yeah yeah so that so that was in the original text also in the original watchman Hooded Justice was uh, was written to have had a sexual relationship with Captain Metropolis. So um, when when we were 
when we were adapting the material, it was like, well, we need to, we need to reckon uh, with the fact that, that, that uh, Hooded Justice is also queer besides being black. And so the more that we talked about the idea though, the more it made sense because, you know, <clears throat> masks are obviously a huge theme in Watchmen and literal and metaphorical. And so you, when you realize that Will is wearing multiple masks, both literally and metaphorically, that he is hiding his uh, queer identity, that he is hiding his black identity. And the way that he's doing that is not only by wearing a mask over his face, but also white makeup on his face. It just sort of, right. it all started to make sense that this is a man who is wearing literal and figurative masks all the time to everybody in his life. And sort of that, that kind of uh, tortured existence is is sort of what, what is leading him down a lot of these darker paths and and and, and um you know uh, clearly again sort of there's so many wounds from the past that carry through to to the present and 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 we see the origin of that being that this is a man who who feels like he can't actually be himself to literally everybody in his life wow wow and i think that one of the one of the most powerful things was all of all of the ways that we got to see him unravel, like all the layers that we got to peel back. And I think um, you all did a really beautiful job at that. And so, you know, it be, with it being Pride Month especially, and as we're all fighting for all Black lives, I think it's so important to have that representation uh, Absolutely. On, on screen. Absolutely. That was, <clears throat> you know, that, that was never crossed our mind that, that he wouldn't be, that we that we wouldn't you know because that was you know people adapting sometimes and they take and they take what what works and they leave what doesn't work in, in their adaptation but when we when we um discussed that he was also queer that was we sort of knew immediately that that had to be part of the story it wouldn't have yeah. it wouldn't have been uh you know like you said it's incredibly important representation is incredibly important and and i had never seen something like that before and i was excited to work on something that that was going to portray something like that Yes. Ooh, yes. One of the things that I really would love to see is, you know, a re-airing of Watchmen and like a, a watch party on Twitter so we can all really delve into just how perfect the story is for this moment. Where, but while we're dealing with and fighting things that are we're tackling today, police brutality, white supremacy, systemic racism, trauma, all of the things that we're talking about all the time on our social media platforms, in our homes, everything. Um, and so obviously, storytelling plays such a major role in how we are all dealing with day-to-day -day life. What do you think storytelling, what do you think the role that storytelling plays in, in changing culture is? I, I mean, this is, Watchmen premiered in October mm -hmm. um, of 2019. And I believe that in February of 2020, the Oklahoma, state government mandated that the Tulsa massacre was going to be taught in every Oklahoma public school. Yes. And like, and I'm not going to say that, that it was necessarily watchmen that, that forced their hand, but you know, I think that, I think that it didn't hurt. I think that yep. it, I think that it, that it, that only helped uh, bring, bring the issue to light. And so, you know, I think people often write off, fiction and, and TV and movies and novels as, as, as fantasy and, and um, negligible. But I think that, um, I think that that work that, that people do really, really does have, have an effect on people and it has, it has an effect on people's hearts and minds and, and, and has a, has an effect on how they, how they look at the world. And so um, 
I think that people who are, who are working on stuff have a, have a great responsibility to, to, uh, to help people see the world better. And I think that that, that, you know, I think the issue that the people are discussing right now of, of how um, police are portrayed. And I think that, that, um, you know, shows like cops getting canceled, I think are, are a lot of people are, are sort of um, being asked to asked to think deeper about, about what they're putting on the air and about, yes. about how they want to portray um, people in America, how they want to portray institutions in America. And I think that that's, that's only for the better. I think that anytime you're asked to be more thoughtful about what you're working on, isn't a bad thing. Uh, I yeah. think that, I think that I hope that everybody who's, who's being asked to be more thoughtful about, about their work is, um, is understands that it's not coming from a place of, 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 um, uh, censorship or anything. I think it's just asking people to be thoughtful about the work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. We were, I was, that was going to be my next question because color of change released its normalizing injustice report where they literally talked about how police are portrayed in television, on screen and film, and that it, it just makes it seem like there's no issues of race, gender, social, social inequality, violence, racial, like racial issues, power, abuse of power. They, it seemed like you just get arrested and you get the due process <laughs> and America is, is great. And that's just what they like to push. Um, but yeah. as we continue to grow, what, what type of stories would you like to see around policing, around crime, uh, around those type of stories in television? The statistic that like has stood out to me that I think about so much in, in, in recent days was that 95% of um, 911 calls are nonviolent, are nonviolent crimes. Yep. So it's, it is, and if you would have asked me when I was a kid growing up and watching, you know, I, I used to, I watched cops when I was a kid. Uh, I used to think that, you know, every cop was stopping murders and rapes and, mm. and, and violent bank robberies where people were shooting bank tellers. Like the, the idea that, um, but the, but the reality is that the vast majority of, of 911 calls are not that like, like yeah. they're calling about people who are, maybe homeless or mentally ill or, yeah. or, or, you know, I listened to that. I listened to that, um, that awful recording of, of, uh, Elijah, um, yeah, I'm McClain. Elijah McLean. And, and it's like, mm -hmm. somebody called the cops on him because he had a ski mask on like right. that. Like he wasn't doing anything. He had a ski In mask COVID. on. Yeah. Oh no, that wasn't mean? COVID. It was, no, that it was, was COVID, before. but it was last year. But, but, right. he had, but, but it was like, he was just a kid wearing a ski mask and you're calling the cops right. about that. And it's like, why? I think that, I think that our entertainment um, is particularly, particularly police entertainment is just, you know, leads you to believe that cops are always stopping violent criminals and they're stopping serial killers and rapists right. and murderers. And, 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 you know, I'm watching, I'm rewatching the wire right now. Uh, I've been rewatching the wire, which um, I love very deeply. And, and, you know, I'm on season three of the wire and, and a lot of that is just, you know, the Bunny Colvin realizing how pointless the drug war is and like mm. how, how, how much he's wasting his time and his energy and his officers are beating up 14 year olds and learning no lessons. Like, why are we right. doing this? Right. And right. he starts and he, and he starts Amsterdam. So I just, I, I think that more stuff like that, that just gets at like many times the pointlessness of the institution, how, how the institution could probably mm. be pared back. And, you know, th th this is another, 
this is another thing that I did when I was a, uh, a journalist. I, I, um, I, I interviewed this, uh, I was doing this piece. I, I used to be a host for, for Vice on HBO. I did some, some stuff for them. And, and we, did a, uh, we did a piece one time about, about policing in the black community and, and what needs to change. And I went to St. Louis and there was a former, former black police chief named, um, I believe his name was Daniel Isom. And I was talking to him and I don't know if this made the piece. I can't remember. It's been a couple of years, maybe a few years ago at this point. But I asked him what he would do differently. Um, you know, what's the thing that, that we, should, we should think about differently? If, if he had the opportunity to wave a magic wand, what would he do to, 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 make, um, to make policing better in the United States? And, and he said a thing that I think about all the time, which is that uh, he said that the problem is, is that police officers should be social workers. That's who we should be hiring for the job is we should be hiring social workers. We should hire, be hiring people who come in and are able to deal with mental illness, are able to deal with homelessness, are able to deal with substance abuse issues. Those are the, those are the kinds of things that people, that, that, that people are calling the police about. And the problem is the, that, that we're hiring uh, quasi military forces, like people, people who want to wear tactical gear and drive tanks and carry big guns. And it's like, you know, when, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so mm. when you're calling in a militarized police force to, um, you know, to check on a homeless person, they're going to get in there and get violent. Right. And, and it's like that, that's, that's not what you, that's not what we need. You know, the homeless people, homeless people don't need to be thrown in cuffs and brutalized and people with mental illness don't need to be thrown in cuffs and brutalized. They need help. And, and uh, they need social workers. And so, so, so I think that to me, just being more thoughtful about that kind of stuff. And I think that in, in watching The Wire, when I think of like a cop show that I'd love to see, you know, this is my second time watching The Wire. It's The Wire. It's a place that gets into the nuances and, and, and complexities of these institutions and, and gets, at, gets at some of the problems that, that exist within them and, and the things that are corroding them from within. And also gets at, you know, I think the other great thing about The Wire is, is exploring the, the, the criminals, right? And exploring the, that these people aren't, demons they, they, they aren't they aren't born bad they aren't they aren't inherently evil they are they're human beings who are who, are, who have a set of circumstances that they're living through and they make decisions because of those circumstances and so um some nuances about about who they're arresting to they're not se serial killers it's not a jeffrey dahmer story or 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 you know like the, these true crime narratives about the most grisly killings that we can imagine you know right. they're 14 year olds yeah exactly they're 14 year olds they're 14 year olds dealing drugs. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like, like uh, it, it, mo most of the time, nonviolently. So I think that when I think of a, a cop show, uh, you know, it's reductive to just say cop show, but when I think of a cop show that, that I would like to see more of, it's something like The Wire, which is incredibly thoughtful about these kinds of issues. I think uh, I, I, that's what I'm a fan of. And that's what I'd hope we get more of in the future. That is awesome. You you made my job very easy for, right. for this conversation. I just have to say, you really did because right. you answered one I of like my last. I like talking to you. All right. Yes, it was been so great. Yeah, and and yeah. it, we the last question that we always ask on our Tell Black Stories podcast is, what is one story that hasn't been told about our community that you would like to see on the big screen? So I think you pretty much wrapped yeah. it up there. But is there another story that you'd like to see that hasn't been told? That's just always just like the just the depth of the you know just that being black is, is not, black people are not a monolith. Black is, blackness is huge. And that, 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 that the skin we share has so many stories under that umbrella. 
and that that um, that you know I'm ready for a thing that a movie that I've really really loved uh, within the past five maybe five years maybe it's a little bit longer but um, is Moonlight and yeah. I love Moonlight for any number of reasons but I love Moonlight in particular because it is a it is a movie that is not about black people overcoming white racism. It is about black people living their lives. I don't even think that there's a white character in the whole movie. And it's just about black people, black people's humanity, about black people living, about black people growing up and loving one another and falling out of love with one another and hardship and, 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 and triumph. And to me, that is, that is what I'm, I'm, I'm looking looking forward to is, is movies that, that are not about black people overcoming white trauma. I feel like so many, so many of our prestige dramas are about black people overcoming white trauma in 1962. And not that those shouldn't exist. And, and, and we should, we should remember our history, of course, and we should remember and, and celebrate uh, the people from the history who have triumphed over those things. But I'm ready for more just stories about black people and just living their lives and just going about their lives because we are human beings and, and we deserve stories that, that aren't just about overcoming um, hardship from white people. Wow. Well, I don't know where else we could end it that's better than that. That was right. incredible. Corey, thank, thank you. you so much for being on this episode of Tell Thank Black you for Story. having me. Thank you for having yes. me. I appreciate it. Yes, it was a pleasure to speak with you. Um, and everyone listening, make sure to listen to this episode and more on Apple Podcasts and wherever you stream. We'll see you next time.